Guys, open with me, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. This isn't like a habit for me that I want to be holding this microphone, but our other, my other microphone is like breaking, and it's probably not going to get fixed super quick. So just know that I'm also distracted by this this morning. No, I'm just kidding. Now you're going to be distracted by it because I pointed it out. Anyways, let's move on. This morning and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be pausing our study in the book of Acts as we focus on some key things in the word of God leading up to Jesus's resurrection. And I've titled our study today, The Desire of Our King. Our our main text is going to be Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51, all the way through chapter 10, verse 11. Today we're going to see the mindset and the mission of Jesus as he began his final trek to Jerusalem, things that as we head into this Easter, Easter season will remind and encourage us to have the mindset of Jesus who, who still is just as passionate about wanting to see people saved as he was in the passage we're going to look at this morning. And that we'll see that his desire to send his disciples, that's still us today, into the harvest field of this world hasn't changed either. And as we journey on this road to Easter today, and on Palm Sunday next week, and then Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday two weeks from today, I pray that all these things will give us sort of a a fresh or renewed perspective and awe of our amazing King and Savior, Jesus. Now, our text is going to be broken up into three sections But to begin in chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, we're going to see a situation where two of Jesus' disciples didn't share Jesus' heart for people. It was not an uncommon thing necessarily in Jesus' ministry for his disciples to not really get like the heart that Jesus had. But in that, it's also encouraging for us because we know us. We also don't have Jesus' heart for people oftentimes. And so we're going to be in some ways confronted and challenged, but also encouraged as Jesus reminds them, reminds us what his desire for people really is. And so with that in mind, let's read Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51 through 53, as we get into this first section. Luke 9, 51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to, pray, to prepare for him, if I can talk correctly. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Right away in verse 51, we see as Jesus set himself on going towards Jerusalem for a final time, that he had a, a steadfastness of mind. He had this unwavering will and desire to accomplish everything that the Father had set before him to do so that we could be saved. Could you imagine if what we read here is that then Jesus reluctantly set his face toward Jerusalem? You'd be like, wow, thanks, Jesus. He, re- you know... He sadly, he, he, you know, irritatedly set his face. We, we would come away with a different sort of mindset toward the heart of Jesus, the desire of Jesus for us. But it, it doesn't say that. It says that he steadfastly, there was this, there was this all-consuming desire to be in Jerusalem Not because he just wanted a party, but because he knew that going to Jerusalem was where everything was going to go down. It was where where his physical life was going to end. It's where that great sacrifice would be made. But right away in verses 52 and 53, we see that there was some, some issues that happened right away. Now, there was serious animosity and tension 
between the Samaritans and the Jews in Jesus' day. And it's possible that once the Samaritans knew that Jesus was headed towards Jerusalem, that that's when they decided to not open their homes to him and his disciples to stay. And even though the text doesn't tell us, for Jesus' disciples to enter a village of the Samaritans to prepare for Jesus, it must have been only because Jesus told them to go there. Otherwise, his disciples would never have willingly took the initiative to enter a Samaritan village in the first place. I'm pretty sure that if it, Jesus had left it up to them, they would have gone to every other village around the Samaritan village, but not into the Samaritan village. Just knowing the tensions that existed between these two groups. But look at verse 54. It says, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? You know, these men were so quick to judge and condemn the Samaritans for their actions. And I think in some ways, in some way for maybe some of us, as we read this, we might condemn them and go, well, I I, that's, I would never, I would never kind of respond like that. I would never react like that. S a sort of a self-righteousness might well up within us as we read these things that James and John said. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably have some Samaritan type of people in our lives who we would rather not have to love or reach out to. People who it's hard for us to want to even share the gospel with. People who we would rather write off and move on from. People really, if we're honest, we just don't have the heart of Jesus for you know, in some ways, they could have probably tried to justify themselves. Jesus, we're just looking out for you. We're zealous for you, Jesus. I mean, these people are rude. They don't want you. So we don't want them. And we want to destroy them. You know, <laughs> we don't want anything to do. But Jesus, why don't you go a step further? Just wipe them off the face of this planet. Because you know what? If they don't want you, they shouldn't live. You know, and I think today we see even within our culture, not this extreme, but there's people who just, you know, whatever it is, there's something that happens, there's something that's said, there's some not receiving of them or whatever it is, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, we, we get David's sorts of prayers. Lord, break their teeth in their mouths. <laughs> you know, like, we want to just kind of move on. Like, I don't want anything to do with those people. But Jesus' rebuke in the next two verses might also be a rebuke for some of us. And if it is... I pray we receive that rebuke, that we repent, and, and that change will take place in our lives and our perspective of others. But look, let's look at that in verses 55 and 56. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. These two men who had seen Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who had heard Jesus reconfirm his mission of having to be betrayed and die. These men who struggled with pride and a desire to be great. Who struggled with exclusivity and divisiveness were not operating in a spiritual manner and didn't yet 
get what Jesus was all about. And so Jesus reminds them, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. These men had such a need for change, but in so many ways, so do we, don't we? You know, we all have different weaknesses and imperfections that we all deal with to varying degrees and in different areas of our lives. And knowing how weak I can be, how weak we can be, how imperfect we are, really what we all need is more of Jesus. To see Jesus, to be confronted with his glory and his power and his love and his grace daily and continually. Just like James and John, we must get our perspective of people and Jesus' desire to save people into proper alignment. You know, almost 2,000 years have passed from this account, and yet Jesus' desire is still not to destroy people's lives, even those we would consider the most wicked, but to save them. You know, this is a needed reminder for us to take to heart in this Easter season and always. Otherwise, we can easily drift into a position of mind where we start to see lost people as our enemies instead of seeing them as captives of the enemy who Jesus desires to save. Think about the most wicked, vile person that you can think of in your mind. Think of that person. Even that person Jesus does not want to destroy. Jesus knows how terrible hell is. He didn't, you know, say this here. Like, you know, I, I didn't come to destroy men's lives but to save them. And then from the cross, he starts obliterating all the people that hung him there. He doesn't, like, turn a 180 at some point along this road to the cross. From the cross, the people that we think is, is, couldn't be more horrendous act than to crucify the Son of God. I mean, there's not a more vile act that could ever have been perpetrated on the face of this planet than to put God in human flesh on a cross, be spitting on him, be mocking him, to kill him. But then for him from the cross to be looking at those people and going, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. When we read that, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm like, they know perfectly well what they're doing. These people are jacked up. And yet Jesus is seeing a, a deeper spiritual need even in them. To be mocked by the two criminals that are hanging on either side of him. And then somewhere along the way as he's hanging in agony. With all the sins of the world being thrust upon him. And he's able to have this conversation with one of the criminals to be able to actually lead him to a place of faith so that that prisoner would go, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And for him to say, today you will be with me in paradise. Like Jesus' perspective of people is just different. It's different than ours. We want to draw some really hard lines of who Jesus actually wants to save, and who just really deserves destruction. But when we're confronted with the reality of, of what sin actually deserves, we're reminded that actually you and I all deserve destruction. Our sin is what separated us from the Father. All of us deserved hell. And yet God in his great love and his grace provided a way for justice to be served and for you and I to be pardoned. <laughs> and that's amazing. That great exchange from the cross that he took our sin and in exchange gives us his righteousness. Like there's no greater thing that could ever take place. There's no greater transaction that could ever have been made. 
And for us in this Easter season to be reminded as we interact with people, as, as maybe in the front of our minds, we have maybe more of a gospel-mindedness, which really should be there all the time, not just in this season, that we'd be able to look at people differently. That we'd be able to love people with the love of Jesus. Remember that he doesn't want to destroy them. He wants to save them. Moving on, though, in verses 57 through 62, we're going to see now three different interactions Jesus had with those who expressed a desire to follow him or who he called to follow him and the emphasis and importance Jesus placed on being committed to his kingdom. But before we dive into these verses in this second section, I want us to understand something about these three different interactions Jesus is going to have. That, that in Jesus challenging these three different men's desire to follow him, it's not that he's trying to dissuade them because he doesn't want them to follow him, because he does, but that in challenging their desire to follow him, he's wanting them to understand the cost that's involved. So with that in mind, let's read verses 57 and 58 goes on to say, now it happened as they journeyed on the road. Again, he's making this final trek. He's going to be spending time in these different villages. It says that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is traveling on the road towards Jerusalem, he's making these different visits. And as Jesus is traveling, a man comes to him, expresses this desire to follow Jesus wherever Jesus was going to go, he, wanting to commit himself to Jesus. It, and I, on sort of face value, what this guy does is admirable. We would like to say we do the same thing, right? If we were in this guy's shoes, we'd be like, Jesus, of course I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Jesus is like, dude, you do realize, like, I don't even have a place. Like, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I don't even have a place to lay my head. Are you, do you know what you're actually signing up for? Like, like just almost like a little bit of a reality check. The problem, which Jesus speaks into in verse 58, is that this man was not considering what it was going to cost him if he really did want to follow Jesus wherever Jesus would go. And I have to believe that Jesus knew that there were things in this man's life and in the other two men's lives we're going to look at that would be a hindrance, an obstacle to them actually carrying out their desire to follow him. See, one of the things that competes with any person actually following Jesus wholeheartedly, that includes us, are the comforts and security that we desire to have in this life. Following Jesus as his disciples does not guarantee a life of comfort and security, and Jesus wanted to make sure that this man knew this. And again, I don't believe Jesus is trying to dissuade him, but only challenge him so the commitment is made and then carried out. Let's look at the second interaction in verses 59 and 60. goes on in verse 59. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Unlike the first and third person in this whole scene this person person actually received the call from jesus to follow him but the response of this person and the person who we're going to look at next who willingly volunteered to follow jesus without first receiving a personal call from jesus notice he basically says lord me first lord me first and th this is another thing that competes with us actually following Jesus wholeheartedly when we are our first priority. 
See, that me-first mentality will always keep us from denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and, and, and following Jesus. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we think about ourselves first and we want our way first. When you wake up in the morning, you know, you're thinking about you. You're thinking about how you're feeling. Man, I'm feeling a little tired today. I want to sleep some more. I don't want to get up for work. I don't want to have to get the kids out of bed. I don't want to have to make another meal. I don't. <laughs> I can't feel my legs. No, I, I can't. <laughs> my back hurts. Like. You know, like we, we think about us, like it, it's, it's natural for us. We, we wake up and it's just, what, what can I do for me? But understand that what we're seeing in verse 59 isn't Jesus being compassionless. He's, you know, asking someone to follow him who just had their father pass away and didn't have a chance to bury him yet. And Jesus is just like. You know, forget your dead dad. Like, that's, that's not what's happening here. That phrase, let me bury my father, most likely referred to caring for someone until they died. It's likely that this man's father was in the later stages of life, and the man that Jesus called wanted to wait, wanted to delay Jesus' request until he was ready to obey Jesus' command to follow him Sometime later on. You ever try to delay something with the Lord? He's like, hey, do this. And you're like, Lord, let me handle a few things. Let me get my act together. Let me, you know, let, let me figure out this work situation first. Let me figure out this other thing. Let me, you know. And maybe six months from now, Jesus, you ever try to finagle Jesus? In a year, five years from now, Jesus, I'll be fully on board with the thing that you're wanting to do with my life. And Jesus is like, no. <laughs> like, I, I, when we operate on our timetable, we mess everything up. We mess everything up. Because we're the ones making it all happen. We're the ones working the thing out. We're trying to work the angles. We're trying to make our plans a reality. We got our, you know, all the our ducks in a row that we want to be there. And then we'll factor Jesus into the plans of our lives. We'll then submit to the thing that Jesus is calling us to. And Jesus might be saying in a similar way to us, like, let the dead bury the dead. You're waiting for some far off thing that may or may not even happen or it, OK, it's going to happen. But in the meantime, just just do me, do my plan, live for my will. You want to be a disciple. That means making me the master and you being the servant. And it's a lot easier in our minds to flip that and we want to make Jesus the servant and we're the ones who are the master. I make the plans. Jesus, follow along with what I'm doing. We're not unspiritual enough to actually say those words out loud. But in our minds and in our actions, we're, we're doing that. We're saying that. <laughs> this guy wanted to delay. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't going against the commandment to honor father and mother here. But he is making it clear that the priority of a person's life who wants to follow him must be above father and mother and must be to the kingdom of God above everything and anyone else. You know, culturally, it would have been honorable that this man wanted to stick around and be there with his dad through the latter years of his life until he passed away. But cultural customs are not to be elevated above what God is speaking into our lives and telling us to be about. The living, 
the spiritually alive need to preach the kingdom of God. The, the spiritually dead are able to bury the physically dead. But in order for the spiritually dead to be made alive and receive eternal life, the most important task is not waiting for a burial, for someone to die. But going out and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, which is a message that brings life. You know, why do we get rallied to things when it's too late? Why do we get urgent about stuff when the time has run out or when the time is just, I mean, we, you have a minute left. Why do, why do we wait for urgency for something that Jesus is saying? Just stay in that place. Stay in that place of urgency. How many times throughout the New Testament did we need to read that we're in the last days, or even the Apostle John saying, we're in the last hour. For us to keep in the front of our minds that the time is short. <laughs> that Jesus could come back at any moment for us. And we want to push off the responsibility onto someone else, but we are the spiritually alive ones. We're the ones who have this life giving, life-transforming message that's centered on the one who is the way, truth, and life, Jesus Christ. And you and I have time now. It's something that we can't delay. We can't delay even to hear what Jesus said to this man, you go and preach the kingdom of God. We want to read things like that and then look to someone else and go, did you hear what Jesus said to you? <laughs> I think Jesus is calling. I think this is for you. It's like when you hear a Bible study or something, you're like, ooh, I should share this with my friend. Oh, I should share this with my coworker. Like, what about you? Is there anything in there for you? <laughs> maybe the Lord actually had that just for you. And maybe he does have it for someone else too. But, you know, you go and preach the kingdom of God. So we've seen two of these interactions. The third one in verses 61 and 62 now. Verse 61, another also said, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We see someone else ex expressing this really admirable desire to follow Jesus. But there's also an excuse with it, and we see again this me-first mentality that we saw in the last person. And here in this excuse, we see another thing that can compete in a person's life against fully following Jesus, which is people, relationships. Jesus is most likely speaking into the things in this man's life that were a hindrance, an obstacle to him actually carrying out this desire to follow Jesus, and that was people. His focus wasn't on following Jesus. His focus was on the people that he might lose if he followed Jesus. You know, someone who is looking back at what they've left behind, can't accomplish the work that's set before them. And not only that, but you can't look back at what's behind you and look forward to Jesus and what he's set before you at the same time. You know, when God calls us to follow him and be laborers in his field, this world, the lives of unbelievers, we are not going to be effective at plowing the soil, doing that labor of the gospel if we're looking back at what we left behind. Or if we're looking, we're looking around at what other people are doing. We're looking back at what we're, we're missing out on. We're looking back at at, at past expectations that weren't fulfilled. If our focus is anywhere else, it doesn't matter if it's back 
or to the side or off at a different angle. If our focus is on something else, then guys, we're going to miss the thing that God has right in front of us. How can we look back at what we've left behind as we move forward by faith? Looking back makes a person unfit, not useful for the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that that person can never be useful. But when you're in that state of looking at other things and looking back to the thing that you've missed out on, the thing that you're afraid of losing, your usefulness for the kingdom is damaged. You know, even thinking about this, we think about maybe times in our lives where we've, we've, we've said to Lord Jesus, I, I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to commit my life to you. And then, and then other things got in the way. And, and sometimes when that happens and it happens again, <laughs> and it happens again, and then it happens again later on, and, and, and you've had these moments where you've, 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 committed to following Jesus and you really have wanted to surrender all, but then there's other things that are competing in your heart for the affection that Jesus alone deserves. Sometimes what can happen is that we can just start to give up. We start to feel condemned in that place. Like, you know what? I've lost completely my usefulness. I don't think the Lord can ever use me again. I've blown it. I've made mistakes in the past. Lord, how can you do something with my life? I love when Paul writes to Timothy. And he tells him. That even when we are faithless, God remains faithful still because he can't deny himself. That doesn't give us an excuse for our unfaithfulness. Like, well, he's going to be faithful, so don't worry about it. He'll cover all that. Like, you can just continue in that state. No, but there's grace in that place. You ever had a moment where you've been faithless? Your faith has lacked. You've been unfaithful. God has never changed. He's still going to be faithful. He's even going to still be faithful to you, even when you're unfaithful. You, you're going to change. There's going to be times where you change, in a bad way even. But he's never going to change. And his desire to have us commit ourselves as disciples of him, he doesn't then cast us aside when we've blown it. He's going, come back. Just turn back to me. Come back to that place of simple surrender and faith once again. To let the Lord pick us up and dust us off and set us back up onto our feet again. And commission us once again in his grace to be about Jesus. We might look at these three guys and we're going, God bless you. We might be like, man, I, <laughs> I've i never even, I mean, I i don't know that I've even had this same sort of strong desire to express that I want to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe I've just kind of like haphazardly walked into this whole discipleship thing. I love it that Jesus desired for these people to be his disciples. But those things that exist in our hearts that are competing. That will that will actually they're, they're, they're keeping us back from really fully being in that place of surrender to the Lord. He does want to address those things. He does want to deal with those things. He doesn't want to leave them there. 
He's calling us forward. He's calling us upward. Would we grab a hold of that even this morning, knowing that the Lord wants us to be fully in that place of devotion to him? But now in our final section, in in chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, and we could have kept going, but just for the sake of our study and our time, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see our King Jesus now appoint and send these others, other disciples with some needed exhortations as they went out as his ambassadors. These are things we can grab a hold of today as we remember that the, the harvest is great, the laborers are few, that we're to pray, but then we're to be ready to go and proclaim about our king. So with that in mind, let's start by reading in, reading in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. This scene that we have before us in the coming verses is almost identical to what happened when Jesus called the 12 apostles to himself and sent them out at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. And the reason I point that out is so that we'll see that Jesus' heart to reach people and his desire to send people to reach people is the same. It was the same then, but nothing has changed. It's still the same today. And as we look at verse 1, we see that after Jesus had those three interactions with those three different men, and sadly we're not told that any of them actually followed Jesus, we see that Jesus appointed, he commissioned 70 others, and he sent them out into pairs. I love that. Jesus didn't send them alone. Like they had accountability. They had built-in encouragement. They had built-in fellowship. Right? They could have each other's back. Like, is a tag team. Anybody want a tag team? Anyway. I watched WWF as a kid. So when I think of tag team, I'm thinking of, like, Legion of Doom. Anyways, moving on. God wants to use us even in pairs. I, I, I like that. that he, he has a consideration sort of for our own personal, you know, our timidity even that we might have at times. But let's look at what Jesus tells them as he appointed them in verses 2 and 3. He said, then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. We're like, wait, that, everything was going great there. Couldn't you have sent us out as lions among donkeys? Or like, could, could you have put a better animal example for us to identify with there, Jesus. Send us out a little bit differently, would you, Jesus? Like, I mean, I'm, this is all great. The harvest is plentiful. Labors are few. We're going to pray. Lambs among wolves, though. Uh, unlike those three men who had a me-first mentality when Jesus called them to put their hand to the plow and get into the fa- field uh, as laborers for his kingdom, these 70 answer Jesus's call in wholehearted obedience and surrender and faith. And I, I love it that we aren't given the names of these 70 individuals. We're just told that they were others also. These people were not apostles, and yet Jesus called and appointed them. He empowered and sent them. He wanted to use them to represent him to this world and his plan to bring people into his kingdom, which is exactly what Jesus is wanting to do with Every single one of us today, we are others who he's called. He wants us to answer his call to follow him. And in verse 2, as Jesus appoints the 70, he gives them some much-needed perspective as he tells them that the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And this is actually the third time in the gospel records that Jesus is making this statement. The harvest is great, the laborers are few, therefore they must pray, we must pray. 
You know, when we're looking out around the world, do we, do we have a different perspective now than then? Do we think, you know what, I don't think the harvest is as great anymore. I don't think there's as many people that need to be saved as there were in Jesus' day. Do we look around and go, oh, there's just an abundance of laborers. I'm not really needed. I mean, we might think that because we want to excuse ourselves at times from being the laborers. But I don't think any of us look around. I mean, if anything, we're going, laborers are few. Look around here in the Bay Area, we go, laborers are few. The harvest is great. I mean, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean we look at the harvest and we're going, and, and we're not discouraged or frustrated or even offended at times by the harvest, by what we're seeing around us, the, the culture that we exist within. But the harvest is great. If anything, those things reinforce to us how badly this area needs Jesus Christ. I don't think any of us are coming away going, I think we're pretty Christianized now here. Pretty sure everyone's heard the gospel, everyone's saved, and we're good. And we're like, gosh, Lord, please do something here. Like pleading. Like every time someone moves away out of state or some other area, I'm like, does anyone feel called to be here? And I'm not saying anything about people moving away. I'm, I'm not, that's not a diss. But in my mind, I'm like, Lord, send people here. We need missionaries here. We need more laborers here. People that have the heart of Jesus, he's not wanting to destroy men's lives. He wants to save them. That we would be those laborers who have a wholehearted devotion as disciples of Jesus. We put our hands to the plow. We're not looking back. We're committed to what Jesus is wanting to do here. The harvest is great. The laborers are few. Notice the first thing that Jesus says, so pray. That's, a, that's an important part of this because we're not to go out in our strength, in our own efforts. We're to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Why? Because he wants to do something in us. He wants to prepare us. He wants to equip us. He wants to change our minds. He wants to get us in line with his will. When we're prayerful about things, we are more mindful about those things. When I'm praying about the souls of individuals around me all the time, I am much more mindful of those people. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. He wants to align our heart, our will with his. He wants us praying so that we're listening. We're sensitive to the leading of his spirit. We'll, we're open to the opportunities that he has for us to, to point others to Jesus. But notice that after Jesus tells them to pray in verse 2 and verse 3, the ones who were the prayers become the laborers who are told to go. You know, oftentimes we will look at this and we go, okay, cool, I'm going to pray for the Lord. Lord, send others. Send people to my friend, Lord. Send someone to my coworkers. Send someone to my family member. And the Lord's like, sucker, that's you. No, the Lord doesn't say that to you, right? I think he says that to me sometimes. Anyways, he's like, cool, you're praying. But, like, I'm praying thinking, like, God's going to send somebody else. And he's going, like, cool, I have you praying because, actually, I want you to be the one going. I want you to be the one that's sharing. I want you to be the one that's loving. I want you to be the one who's reaching out and bringing in and pointing to Jesus. I, I want you praying because I want, to, I want to do something in you so that you are ready to be on board with my plan. And we have this assurance, even though we might not like that he says lambs among wolves, he's the one sending us. He's the one who's with us. A lamb is defenseless. It's a defenseless animal. A wolf is a predatory animal. We're lambs among wolves. 
but it actually was supposed to be encouraging because the great thing going out as lambs is we have the great shepherd Jesus who is with us and who is protecting us and who has gone before us. Don't try to flip that like you're wolves among among wolves. It's like popular popular thing going on in Christian social media calling believers lions because, you know, whatever. But we're not called that. We're called lambs. Embrace it. Embrace who our shepherd is. Verses 4 through 8, we're going to trek through here quicker. My page flipped on me. Verse 4 through 8, Jesus says, Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a set of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, each eat such things as are set before you. Jesus saying, greet no one along the road, in verse 4, just reinforces the urgency of their mission. And in verses 5 through 8, we see similar sorts of directions to the one Jesus gave the 12 regarding what they were to do when someone received them and an encouragement and how how uh, the Lord was going to take care of them as they served in this sort of way. But now verse 9, Jesus says, And heal the sick there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Their calling was to do all this, the healing and the preaching, so that when Jesus came to town, the people's hearts would be open to receiving Jesus because they had already seen his power at work, had already heard about the amazing kingdom of God, Jesus being the king of that kingdom through those Jesus appointed and sent. See, in taking up the call of Jesus to follow him, knowing he's calling us to reach lost people for him in the harvest field of this world, we need to keep in mind at the same time that some sow, some water, but that God causes the increase. No matter what role we have when sharing Jesus with someone, the importance is faithfulness. We need to get out into the harvest fields, get the seed of God's word, his gospel out to people. We are the laborers he wants to use. But I want to end with verses 10 and 11. He says, but whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. You know, I, we're not physically like when we talk to somebody, we like take our coat off, we brush it out. We take off our shoes, we knock it against the ground like, I don't want anything to do with you. Like, this was... <laughs> Part of this, of what Jesus is saying here, is to not take anything, the, the rejection, don't take the rejection with you. You know what happens when we take the rejection with us? We, it, it can become a hindrance. It can start to deter us. It just starts to discourage us. Well, that person rejected, no one wants to hear. That person really was, oh, they, they were so abrasive towards me when I was trying to share the gospel, like, Maybe I shouldn't share. Like, maybe I should kind of be more quiet. Like, no, we need, to, we need to wipe off the dust in some ways to be able to go, Lord, okay, that's between them and you. I've done what you've called me to do, but, Lord, there's other people you want me to share the gospel with. There's other people who will receive. And so, Lord, keep me going. Help me not to let the rejection cause me to just kind of go take a seat on the sidelines. No matter if people receive or not, they were to stick to the message that the kingdom of God had come near them. And we need to keep these things in mind as ambassador, um, ambassadors of our King Jesus today. Some will reject us. There will be people who won't receive us, won't receive the gospel message that we share with them. But we can't let that deter us or slow us down or stop us from being about Jesus and his kingdom in these last days. And as we begin today and in the coming 
few studies to consider the road to Easter, we've seen today the desire of King Jesus and how he set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing again what would happen to them, him there in the, in the way that he challenged his disciples' wrong perspective about people and the ways that he called people to wholehearted devotion and discipleship to him and his kingdom and in the and in the way he appointed and sent out laborers after telling them to pray all these things reinforce Jesus's desire to save people and to use saved people to help save other people you get that Jesus wants to use saved people to help save other people that's us I pray God uses these things we've looked at and considered today to bring us out of places, maybe, if it's us, of apathy, of lethargy. We're just kind of lazy. Maybe we've become self-centered. We've got a me-first mentality going on. I, I pray he'll correct any areas where our focus and our priorities are out of alignment. That he'll convict and correct us in any areas where we don't have his love and care and compassion for others, that he'll ignite a fire and passion in us for him, his gospel, his commission, his kingdom. That he'd encourage us in places where we feel timid or frustrated or discouraged. That he'd give us boldness and the power of his spirit to live for him and preach him in these days and in the days to come, and that we will be those willing laborers, those prayerful laborers who go into the harvest field. There's a lot here for us to meditate on and pray through and seek to apply from our study today, but as we transition, I want to have us take communion together this morning. First Corinthians chapter 11, my go-to passage. I love Paul sharing the revelation that he got from the Lord. He said, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And we get to do that. It's the amazing thing about becoming a disciple of Jesus is we are the people who have benefited from what Jesus did for us on the cross. His body that was broken, his blood that was shed. His blood that brought forgiveness of sins. His blood that has brought us into a new covenant of grace. We get to have this amazing communion with the living God. As people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so we get to, yes, look back and remember, celebrate what Jesus has done. But there's an aspect of proclamation, Paul says, where proclaiming his death. That means we're still telling other people as we do this. We're proclaiming his death till he comes. We're telling other people Jesus died for them. And so if that's you even this morning, you're here with us and you've not first just opened your heart and surrendered to Jesus. Maybe you've been doing your own thing. That me first mentality is just, it's there for you, and it's kept you actually from coming to a place where you've actually repented of your sin and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. Know this morning, the desire of our King is for you. It's for your heart. It's to save you, not to destroy you. And if that's you this morning... I'd love to pray for you. If that's anybody and you would be so bold as to stand where you're at, I'd love to pray for you this morning to make that decision for Jesus, to know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, to know that your 
sin has been paid for. That heaven is awaiting you. Jesus is awaiting you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we're thankful for these reminders. Lord, whether for us today it was a word of encouragement, a word of challenge, a word of conviction, Lord, bring it on. We need it. Lord, we need to hear from you, Lord. We need you to be working in our lives. Lord, that you would deal with those things even in our hearts where maybe we don't have your heart for others. Lord, that you give us your love for people. Lord, would you bring us back to that simple place of discipleship. Lord, that truly our whole heart would be devoted to you. Every bit of us, Lord, would be surrendered to you continually. Lord, that we would follow you. Follow you, Lord Jesus. Those areas maybe where we failed, where we faltered, where we've fallen. Lord God, would you pick up your people today? Lord, would you encourage and strengthen them? Lord, to keep going, to keep looking to you. Lord, that they would know that they've not lost their usefulness, Lord, that you still want to use them. Lord, would we be those who are praying continually because the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Lord, in that place of praying, Lord, change us, prepare us, God, soften us. Lord, make us sensitive and open and surrendered to your plan. And Lord, when you tell us to go, that we would listen, that we would walk by faith, Lord, that we would preach the kingdom of God, Lord, that we would not preach anything else but you, Jesus. Lord, would you use us, help us to not be discouraged when people don't receive us, receive you, your message. Lord, would we wipe off the dust and keep going. Lord, would you use us for your kingdom and glory? Lord, would you do something radical here in the Diablo Valley and all throughout the Bay Area, Lord? God, an awakening of hearts, Lord. God, that the blind, the spiritually blind and deaf would be made to see and to hear. Lord, that those whose hearts are hard hard towards you, Lord, God, that you would soften them. Lord, that you would convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Lord, that you would bring lost people in our area to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, do something radical, Lord, in our days. And Lord, use us as saved people in your plan to save people. Lord, we thank you for Jesus for dying for us, for going to the cross, Lord, that your body was broken, your blood was shed. And this morning, Lord, we want to take these communion elements together as your people, doing these things in remembrance of you, Lord, our minds fixed upon you, in worship of you, And so, Lord, we do that now as we take this bread. Lord, again, we remember your body that was broken. So let's do that together this morning. Jesus, we're thankful that not just your body, but, Lord, your blood, your perfect, spotless, sinless blood, The blood of the Lamb of God was shed to take away the sin of the world. Lord, our sin. Lord, that we deserved eternal punishment. But Lord, you took our place. You paid the debt that we owed. Lord, that we can never pay. And Jesus, in return, you've given us forgiveness. You've given us your salvation new life. Lord, this morning we just say thank you. Lord, we drink this juice, Lord, in remembrance of you.
Let's do that now. And Lord, we do want to proclaim your death till you come. Lord, help us to be bold in these days, Lord, to not allow our own insecurities or our own desire for comfort or security, Lord, to keep us, to hold us back from, Lord, the work that you've called us to, Lord, that we are all, each of us, missionaries here in this world, Lord, we are ambassadors of you, Lord, our great and awesome King, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to proclaim you, Lord, with every ounce of our being, with as long as we have a beat in our heart. And Lord, God, would you, uh, Lord, just help us to, Lord, uh, come back to you daily in that place of denying self and picking up our cross and following you. Lord, be glorified. And Lord, we want to sing these songs to you now. Just worshiping you, Lord, because you're worthy. And Father, we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.